My name is Louise Kennedy and my novel is called Trespasses. The debut novel of Irish author Louise Kennedy, Trespasses, is set in Northern Ireland during the height of the Troubles, and the tension between the Catholics and the Protestants is paramount to this narrative. It follows 24-year-old Kushla Lovery and her blooming affair with the older Michael Agnew, a problematic match because Michael is married and also a Protestant while Kushla is Catholic. I recently spoke with Louise Kennedy about her own experience growing up during the Troubles and how setting can shape dialogue. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. Before the reader even begins reading this novel, we receive a little plot hint from, you know, the title initially, and then from the second epigraph included in the beginning of Trespasses. And it's this quote from Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. Ah, that first affair, how well one remembers it. So could you give our listeners a brief description of Trespasses, maybe, you know, the lovers and the setting? And I mean, in addition to the fact that of our two lovers, one is married. I mean, why is their relationship dangerous? Um, so Trespasses is set in the north of Ireland in 1975 in a town on the shores of Belfast Loch. The community is predominantly Protestant, about 90 percent. And there's a little small community of Catholics. And Cushla Lavery, the protagonist, belongs to that community. She is 24. She teaches in a little parochial school. And in the evening, she helps out in the bar that her family owns in the town. The bar is run by her fairly unpleasant older brother, Eamon. Their father has died a couple of years earlier and Eamon's in charge of everything. And Kushla lives with her mother, Gina, who isn't handling her grief very well. Or I don't know, maybe she is. Um, She's handling it by drinking a lot of gin. Because of the time and place that Kushla lives in, the town is to an extent quite segregated, but yet her family owns a place where people go to drink and socialise. And that is challenging, I think, especially for Kushla's brother, because he has to tread a fairly careful line in what he says behind the bar, because there are off-duty British soldiers drinking in there who can be problematic. And, you know, I suppose the demographic of the bar represents the general demographic of the town. And one evening, Kushla is left alone for a little while, very quiet night in the bar when a man walks in. I suppose he definitely seems to be a lot more interesting and sophisticated than some of the regulars and they're kind of drawn to each other. It's problematic, I suppose, because Michael is a lot older. He's a Protestant and also he's married. I suppose in those days, any one of those things would be a problem. But I think the combination of the three is probably inevitable that they're going to run into obstacles. You know, I suspect that our listeners have a baseline understanding of the troubles in Ireland. And your book does a really good job of setting up the historical context and capturing the dynamic between the Catholics and the Protestants. Now, you mentioned you grew up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, and I understand that there's a kernel of your family's history in this novel. Is there a kernel of truth? You know, how did your experience compare with that of Kushla's family? Well, I suppose, um, so I I said earlier that Kushla is a teacher. She teaches a class of seven or eight-year-olds. And in 1975, I was eight. So I could have been uh, one of Kushner's pupils. And I suppose because the story is completely from my imagination. You know, the story of this young woman falling for this man uh, is from my imagination. And I think because of that, and because, you know, really pretty terrible things did happen to people during the Troubles, I wanted every other part of the book to be as true to reality as possible. So um, my family had a bar in a town very like the one that Kushner lives in. It was bombed a couple of times. I, um, you know, sat in school and like Kushla's pupils, I mean, uh, quite a few sections of them. I I think really every time uh, we see Kushla in the classroom with the children, 
the chapter begins with the children reciting the news, which is something that we did. And I don't think the adults, you know, the teachers realised that they were probably re-traumatising us, but uh, we were like little war reporters. And it was actually quite a competitive thing, you know, that there were some children who who um, wanted to be very good at the news. And um, and really, quite often, that was a litany of death by bombs, guns, um, you know, security breaches, and then a lot of other dreary but sort of fairly heavy political stuff going on in the background as well. And and we we had the vocabulary to express all of that. I think to an extent we probably did understand a lot of what was going on. I mean, these things were not right in front of us, but sometimes they did encroach into the classroom. And um, I tried to reflect that in a relationship that Kushla has with one little boy in her class, a child called Davy, whose parents were from what was called a mixed marriage, where his father's a Catholic, his mother is a Protestant, and even though his mother agreed that the children should be brought up Catholic, she refused to convert. And this led to, has just led to them really being kind of very much on the margins from both in the in the largely Protestant estate that they live in and also in the Catholic community. Yeah, they're sort of uh, frowned upon. One evening, Davy's father is, uh, is the victim of a random, uh, fairly savage um, sectarian attack and cut with them is sort of drawn towards the family and tries to help them. That sort of thing happens sometimes. You know, I remember um, one day a boy didn't come into my class for a few days and it turned out that his uncle had been shot. So, so sometimes these things did actually happen, you know. Uh, in lots of other ways, it was quite a normal childhood, but the trouble certainly um, encroached uh, quite a bit. I was going to ask you about, you know, Davy's parents and that whole relationship. But before I even get to that, you know, I think we're probably about the same age. I, I think in 1975, I was eight years old. Mm-hmm. And but I was living in Wichita, Kansas. So, you know, when I started this book, I didn't grow up understanding or learning about the troubles in Ireland. And, you know, at the beginning of the book, when Kushla walks in and Eamon is angry at her, like it's Ash Wednesday and he wants her to scrub those ashes off of her forehead. Mm-hmm. And it took me until like halfway through the book to realize, oh, he was really angry and there was a reason why he didn't want her to, you know, to. Oh, yeah. So so we did this. We were told to remove any kind of overt signs of our religion. And this is just something that we did because we were in a fairly small minority in a town where um, most people didn't get ashes or approve of people getting ashes, I suppose. So, um, yeah. So all of those things would have been um, a feature of my childhood. I think really I tried to. Um, I don't know. I, I, it wasn't that I sat down with kind of a list of things that I thought I ought to get through to make it seem authentic. But I just found that as I wrote that memories were coming to me really of things. And, you know, I think I was quite a few drafts in before I remembered the bomb scares that used to happen in school. So I have um, a, a bomb scare. You know, it was a little bit scary, but also it happened so often that it was kind of fun, too, because it meant that we were taken out of the school and brought into the church where we were either uh, singing or kind of running around after the eaters, actually, until until the police came and said that the building appeared to be clear. So, yeah, there were some features like that that, um, I mean, I guess we were children and we were, you know, you just accept whatever is happening around you as normal. But, you know, it really wasn't normal. Like, look now, when I think the way that my children were brought up was absolutely not normal to be, you know, to be uh, marched out of your classroom because there's a fair possibility somebody's planted a bomb in your school. You know, back to like Davy's parents, you know, in addition to Michael and Kushla's dangerous relationship, you know, I didn't quite understand, you know, you mentioned that Davy's parents had a mixed marriage and I didn't quite understand what would cause them to be shunned and targeted by both the Protestants and the Catholics. Okay, so I think um, the the convention seems to be, I think the Catholic Church expected that where a Catholic married someone who wasn't a Catholic, that the other person would convert. 
and become a Catholic and that their children would be brought up in the Catholic faith. So Davy's mother, Betty, has gone along with some of it. She has accepted that the children go to a Catholic school and that they're brought up as Catholic, but she hasn't converted. But not only that, as far as her own family and her own community is concerned, she is worse than being a Catholic. She's worse than a Catholic because she's chosen to marry one and uh, live with one. And she's doing that because there's nowhere else for them to go um, in this big, fairly rough and ready council estate. And, and, and that's difficult for them and uh, particularly difficult for Davy's older, uh, older brother, Tommy, who, you know, he's wearing like the wrong school uniform. It's easy to identify what community he belongs to. And he, he um, I guess he is harassed fairly often by majors in the estate. There was one point in the book where Kushla, she was lamenting her name, wishing her parents would have named her something easier, but not Mary, because mm-hmm. that would have marked her as Catholic. So yeah. can you talk to me about the meaning behind her name? It was, is it a pulse or a heartbeat? Is that right? It is. So um, Kushla McCree means the pulse of my heart. Cree is heart and uh, Kushla is pulse. So that's what it means. And it's an endearment in Irish. And um, I guess Kushla is, it's not really a name as such. It's, it's possibly like Shannon or Erin, you know, one of those names that uh, sounds quite Irish, but it's not really an Irish language um, name. But also it's a name that really identifies her as Catholic. People um, in a society like that, they, they have ways of identifying, um, you know, what foot one person kicked up or another does. And name would be a really good identifier because um, I suppose a lot of Catholics in the North would have Irish surnames. And a lot of the um, people who aren't Catholic in the North would have maybe English or Scottish surnames. And also their first names would tend to be different too. You get a lot of Marys, or we certainly in those days, you would have got a lot of Marys and a lot of Bridges and Kathleen's. Yeah, those would have been the names, the girls' names for Catholic girls usually. The other epigraph of Trespasses contains a passage from Kieran Carson's poetry collection, The Irish for mm-hmm. No. And it's mm-hmm. also the title of the first section of the book. And mm-hmm. the idea of... The Irish for no is mentioned in the book, which I found so interesting. So can you talk to me about the Irish language? I mean, in the context of explain the concept of the Irish word for no. Mm-hmm. OK, so there is no uh, direct translation of no in the Irish language. So uh, you might say, depending on how, how the question is asked, you might say it is or it isn't. Or do you know what I mean? It's never it's never no. If someone says, would you like a cup of tea? You would either say I would like or I wouldn't like. You wouldn't say no. So Michael, the man that Kushla has met, I suppose he's trying to you know, find some kind of vaguely legitimate way to see Kushla. And he realizes that she speaks the Irish language and he's trying to learn it with some of his friends who are, you know, his age. They're 50 odds and they're sort of boho bohemian and he, he's probably taking the Irish language quite seriously and the others aren't really it's an excuse to sit around and drink a lot of wine and um, <laughs> and eat nice food in a nice house and and, and I think there's really um there, there probably is quite but Kushner really finds quite a bit of conflict in, in the language because there's one guest who's always at that table who, who tends to to go to her quite a bit and I suppose maybe because there is actually I mean a part of the problems in in, in the north are are sort of cultural I mean that's a historical thing really you know that you know when uh, Elizabeth first sent uh, the planters in, um, you know, in the 1600s, uh, they were sent with the instructions. Or 1500s was uh, to what was it? Kill all the storytellers, break their their harps. So you know there there really was an intention to sort of uh, culturally obliterate you know the native uh, population, which really largely worked. Yeah, it's it's a contentious thing. The language is a contentious thing. It's still contentious. So yeah, I think that's maybe why I had this Irish class as um, you know. 
Nigel thinks it's a way of bringing them together, but actually when Kushla um, gets there and, and, um, and, you know, she's the only person from, you know, from her, her community uh, around the table and, and, and really starts to feel pretty um, isolated. I want to talk to you about dialogue because I watched a video of you discussing dialogue for the Sunday Times Audible back in 2020. And you brought up, you know, several fascinating points about how authors craft their dialogue and what makes it successful. And, and something that has stuck with me from your video is when you said that your interest in how people speak comes from a place of alienation. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, so um, I was born in Belfast and grew up very near Belfast. And I, that's where I lived until I was 12. And then after that, my family left the north and we moved to the south. And I went from living in a place where everyone spoke like me to um, being in a place where nobody spoke like me, except, you know, when I went home. And um, I think that really made me, I, I think I'm a good mimic as well. I, everyone in my family is a good mimic. My brother is such a good mimic, it's sort of terrifying. Uh, he could probably commit terrible crimes with it or something. But it's such a gift. <laughs> I, I think as a result of that, I am really interested, not just and not really in what people say as much as how they say it. I found that not only not only were different words used, you know, uh, in, in the north, you know, the, the way that we spoke was peppered with some uh, words of Ulster Scots. But I didn't know that's what the words were at the time. But I, I figured that out later on because in the south, nobody was speaking like that. And then also there's probably something in, in, in the South about the, uh, the the syntax of the sentences, which is a bit, it, it certainly sounded very off to me, you know. Um, there's one example that I kind of love from my experience of working with editors, both in um, in, in the UK and in, in the in the US, which is that I, I, I have a sentence and it's, uh, what happened to you, which is how it would be said in Irish. But it looks wrong because it would normally be what happened to you. But people would never say that. And I just um, I'm sort of interested in trying to catch how people actually say things. You know, I was curious. You spoke about the variations of vocabulary and and syntax in the north and south of Ireland. Mm -hmm. But I was curious about, you know, we're reading this in the United States. And was there any translation that had to happen for the Riverhead version? Actually, very little. Um, Becky, my editor at Riverhead, uh, has been just great to work with and, and you know, asked me about lots of things. And I think there were maybe a few instances where we realised that some clarification was necessary or where we felt that um, readers in the US would have no way of, of knowing what um, a particular phrase or abbreviation meant. So maybe there were a few differences, but really, mostly we've tried to, to stick to to the original book. It, it really hasn't changed too much at all. You know, readers are kind of smart and they, um, I think they get into, you know, if you're reading things, um, I'm thinking about books like The True History, The True History of the Kelly Gang, you know, Peter um, Carey's book about mm -hmm. Ned Kelly. I think um, about halfway down the first page, I thought, I don't know if I can read this because it's written in this really, really heavy kind of demotic um, 19th century uh, Australian voice. Um, but actually, after about two pages, I didn't even notice. And I, I think that readers do kind of get into things. You know, also, when it comes to dialogue, you do not use quotation marks. Is that an intentional decision? I think it is. And um, there are a couple of reasons for that. I think I'm not a very tidy person in uh, other aspects of my life, but I, I try to be a sort of tidy, uh, orderly person when I'm uh, writing. And I quite like how it looks on the page. I think it looks cleaner. You know, I also there were decisions made not to use asterisks and stuff like that. But another reason is that um, trespasses is written in the third person uh, in the past tense. So it's like Kushla did whatever or she did, you know, or she said. And I think I wanted I wanted that voice to be as close to her 
inner thoughts. I think that I think the third person is a really brilliant point of view to use for writing because you can describe something that's happening across the road. You can you can go back and forth in time. You can give context, but also you can go right into a character's head, go straight in there, which I really love. I suppose maybe I wanted particularly pushless dialogue to be really kind of bedded down into the text so that maybe, I don't know, that it just felt extremely close to, to, to her, uh, you know, what was coming out of her mouth as it was happening or something. So I hope that's that effect. I know some people don't love it and they prefer quotation marks, but yeah. <laughs> well, you know, my our producer, Haley, who's listening, she she was saying that it's to her, it's a sign that she needs to slow down when reading and and not let herself race through this, the scenes with dialogue. So mm-hmm. and as she you know, she when she mentioned that, I thought, oh, yeah, that's true, because sometimes I, I do just find myself just reading the quotation marks and, and ignoring mm-hmm. everything else. So, yeah, I, I think she Yeah, accurate. that's the thing whenever you're reading, yeah, because that is something that happens, isn't it, with readers that you nearly kind of speak ahead to see what the characters are saying or something. Yeah. Yeah. So here are three lines of that quotationless dialogue, and this, this was from early in the book, page 51. Will you stick with it, he said? Yeah, I hate not finishing a book. That's a good policy, although sometimes I think life's too short. So do you have a policy when it comes to reading books about sticking with them, finishing them? I'm afraid I'm a finisher. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of wish I wasn't. I feel as if um, I've been beaten or defeated or something if I don't manage to finish a book. And it is probably a silly thing to do, really, because it's not even that it's reflective of quality. But I think if a book isn't kind of grabbing it by the throat by about 50 pages, then you're probably... Uh, not even grabbing it by the throat, but I think if you're really having huge doubts and not getting into it at all, then I don't know if there's much of a point in persisting, but I do. Also, I think maybe since I started writing, I feel a, a sort of a loyalty to um, to other writers where I think if somebody's gone to all this trouble to write something, the very least I can do is to finish reading it. You know, sometimes I think the reader has to be in the right place to read a book as well. There was one I read a few weeks ago where I tried, I think, three times to get started and just couldn't do it. And then the fourth try, it just sucked me in immediately. So I think Oh, sometimes... that's interesting. Yeah. So maybe it can be about headspace or whatever else is going <laughs> yeah. on. Yeah, that's that's for sure. So um, Kushla and Michael are fairly well read. So can you talk to me about some of these works that were included in the novel and how, you know, how other authors possibly influenced Trespasses? Um, yeah, so so I suppose some of the books uh, that maybe you're thinking of, uh, The Black Prince, that is the book that's Kushla. I suppose she, um, quite, pretty soon after she meets Michael, um, she wanders into Belfast one thing, isn't it? Instead of picking up the usual books that she'd normally read, which would be sort of a fairly easy read, finds a book by Iris Murdoch called Black Prince. I think that actually might have been shortlisted for the Booker Prize in like 1974 or something. So I was trying to keep it relevant to you know, the sorts of books that would have been, that she might have seen on the shelves then. And she really finds it pretty heavy going. Now, that's no reflection on um, Iris Murdoch because Kushla has a lot going on. You know, she has a job, she has her other kind of part-time job in the evening. And then I guess also pretty quickly, um, a lot of her um, spare time is uh, taken up with uh, figuring out ways to sneak out to see to see Michael. And so, so that's when Michael says to her, you know, um, what is it he says that he, he, he thinks that, he basically thinks it's okay to, to not finish a book. I suppose some of the other books that I, the crept in there, uh, Jude the Obscure, later on, that's a book that Kushla lends to this teenage boy who's a, a brother of one of her pupils. And yeah, I mean, I think maybe I just for a moment remembers what it was like. I think the first Hardy book I read was Far From the Magic Crowd when I was around 15 or 16. And then I read Tess and the Mayor of Castrovich. And then I read Jude and it was like, mother of God, I'm actually afraid to open a book again. 
it was a bit shocking. So maybe there was an element of that that I just wanted to, to let Kushla have a chance to put that book in a teenager's hand and, and, and see how they get on with it. I, I guess in terms of influences on my uh, writing of the book, I mean, I am aware that I'm probably writing in um, in a particular uh, tradition. And there is a tradition of, of novels set during the Troubles. And there's a particular book that I really, really love. And I, I read, I've read it several times since I was in my teens. And again, it was shortlisted by the book or maybe in the late 70s. And it's by Jennifer Johnston and it's called Shadows in our, on Our Skin. And it was set in Derry about a, a young teacher. Although the story is, is uh, very different. Another writer who probably had, probably has had the most influence on me. And she is uh, really shamefully um, out of print is a writer called Anne Devlin. She was published by Favour and Favour in the UK in the 80s. And she had a collection of short stories called The Way Paper. And there's one story in particular in there called Naming the Names that no matter how often I read it, I get to a particular line and I'm chilled to the bone. I think she's just got um, incredible um, control and without any graphic scenes or, you know, just with suggestion, uh, manages to create this atmosphere of incredible um, tension. And also she's a Belfast writer. So, yeah, I guess those would be some of the books. And you you said that was a short story, the one you just mentioned by Anne Devlin? Yes, it's okay. Naming the Names is a short story, yeah. And the collection is called The Way Paper. Okay, because I'm actually in a short story group, people from all over, mainly booksellers and book reps, and we get on Zoom every two weeks and discuss a specific short story, so I'll have to add that oh, to wow. the list. Oh, okay, so yeah, um, yeah I, I'll see if I can uh, find it and I can send it to you. <laughs> okay, fantastic. If I can find it someplace. I think it might be online somewhere. Okay. Now, Trespasses is your first novel, but you are an experienced short story story writer. And I have a a question about how writing these two forms of literature compare. But first, I want to ask about a different job you had, and it's working as a chef. So, Mm -hmm. you know, talk to me about that. And is that why you were mentioning the meetings where Kushla was trying to teach this group Irish, and maybe it was just a a way for them to get together and eat a good meal and drink wine. And I thought when you said that, oh, maybe that's why I was so hungry when I was reading those parts, because you were a chef. And (laughs) that's why that food sounded so good. (laughs) Yeah, you see, I didn't, I didn't, um, yeah, people have commented on the cooking and the food in, um, in my writing. And it's not something, it's just, I, I've been feeding people since I was about 19 and it's not something that I even think about. I do it as naturally as breathing at this stage. It turns out, I think, that food is probably a really good tool, in um, a really useful tool in, in fiction because it can be used to convey approval or it can be used to seduce, it can be used to punish, which is probably a feature of, um, you know, a lot of people who go to boarding school and say the food is terrible and, you know, the food in prisons is terrible and stuff, you know. And also it could be quite um, an aspirational thing and, I think maybe when Kushla goes into that, um, you know, quite nice house in, in the affluent area and um, they're eating like lovely French food and tins and things that they got on their holidays in the Vendée and stuff, um, that, that 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 is a signifier, I guess, of, of class or aspiration or something, whereas the sort of food that they eat in Kushla's house is very different. Her mother wouldn't be running that kind of show at all. Okay, now talk to me about crafting a short story versus a novel. Do you have a preference? I, it's not that I have a preference, but... Um, I do think short stories are really very hard. Now, that's not to say that it was like really easy to write a novel, but um, I, I think maybe the, maybe not hard, but um, I think they're really intense. And uh, maybe part of that is my own fault uh, because my approach to writing a short story is to, um, to work through paragraph by paragraph painfully slowly with no idea where I'm, I'm going until I've got there. And sometimes that could take very many months. If I had taken that approach with writing a novel, I, I wouldn't have written anything yet. 
because I'd be so disheartened so I'd have packed it in after about 20 pages. So instead of that, and also it was possibly helped by the fact that um, I had a diagnosis for melanoma in March 2019 and um, I had some surgery and knew that I was going to be off for about two or three months, partly to take my mind off the fact that I might I might be very sick and, um, and also partly because I guess I, I realised that I couldn't um, presume that I'd have like infinite time to write a novel. Maybe this was the only chance I was going to get. I set myself a task of writing, you know, I, I said to myself, oh, you can write a thousand words a day. Which even as I said it to myself, I remember thinking that was ridiculous. But actually it did happen often enough for me to have um, a draft. By the time I went back to work, I had a draft of something that could charitably be called a novel. The novel is Trespasses. Louise Kennedy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was delightful. Thank you. That was Louise Kennedy, author of the book, Trespasses, which was published by Riverhead Books. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen. And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia. And for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.